Hello, welcome. We are here for episode three of the first time. I am your host, Stefan Melbourne from Track Barinko in Manchester. And for those that don't know what this thing is all about, the aim of the first time is to take you through the formative steps of some of the brilliant minds in the craft beer industry today, starting from that very first sip that changed everything. Today's guest is Theo Frame. Now, if you don't know the name, you should know the brewery. Theo is the owner and founder of Cheltenham's finest export, Daya. Now, I've known Theo for around four years now, and we've had many conversations in that time, but to sit down with him uninterrupted and hear the day of story right from the very start was really, really special. When it comes to hoppy beers, there ain't many that sit higher than these guys. Their consistency and dedication to process is something to be admired and is reflected in every beer that they put out. If you've drank their beers, then you know exactly what I'm talking about, and if you haven't, you need to change that. Man... I absolutely love this conversation so much. Uh, you quickly learn that it is no stroke of luck that they are what they are and as good as they are. Theo had a vision for what he wanted to do and he's followed it all the way, unwavering to any of the trends or pressures that the market may ask. Now, I don't want to give away too much in the introduction, so let's get stuck in. We start with that all-important question, what was that first beer for him? So... I, I don't think I did have a sort of, um, well, maybe I did, but I don't necessarily remember one beer in particular sticking out that was like the first beer that got me into uh, craft beer. But I remember when I was at university, I was lucky enough to sample quite a lot of different, basically just hoppy IPAs and pen ales. And I remember at the time thinking there's something just so different about these beers, something so interesting about these beers which um pretty quickly got me down the route of homebrewing so i became pretty into it pretty quickly is that unidormitory homebrewing yeah so i actually i had no space i could do at university so i actually came home and um at my house um yeah where my parents live i'd started homebrewing you know um but i would say it's like beers like sierra nevada I was up in Edinburgh, so quite a lot of Brewdog stuff was around, which was, you know, in 20, I can't remember when I was at university, but probably <laughs> when was it, 10 years ago. 10 years ago. It sounds nine, about right. Eight, nine years ago. Yeah. So that would have been like, Brewdog would have been everywhere. They had a bar in Edinburgh as well, which is obviously yeah. like going there and try all sorts of weird shit that they were doing, which is pretty amazing. But it'd be like Sierra Nevada, then Williams Brothers, who are a really good brewery in Scotland. Yeah, I, I thought at the time like Scotland was ha- almost had a disproportionate amount of really good breweries, and I, I still think they do. Like Scottish breweries are really high quality, and you could go in Edinburgh, especially, you go to like local grocery stores and buy Brewdog. You could buy Sierra Nevada. You could buy Williams Brothers. You could buy Cromarty, which who are incredible. Um, they came a bit later. Tempest when I was on my oh, yeah. when I because I went to Edinburgh University first and then I went to Harriet Watt and so when I was at Harriet Watt like, everyone was obsessed with Tempest and, like those breweries are great yeah. and I don't know why they don't get more attention now to be honest with you that's really uh, interesting actually I've not really thought about like the, the the Scottish because that was like you said like 10 years ago so that was like yeah, yeah and you had Black Isle and breweries like that they were brilliant yeah but yeah. then I, I, I guess it was like very regional Focus in a way, like if you're in a certain area, then you're going to pick up brews and that certain area. It's like in Manchester, it's probably like Marble and Thornbridge and stuff like that. 
but because the area that I was in with the US imports as well. Um, and like the hanging back was open in Edinburgh when I was at university there. Yeah. So that was one of the first places I remember being, I just thought it was like insane, but ludicrously expensive. So you'd be like the big (laughs) three to go there and have like a really good beer. Um, but for the most part, just drinking when we were, you know, what it's like university, basically, you know, you, you go out quite a lot and drink quite a lot or whatever. But when we'd have people at our house and stuff like that, we'd always try and have beers that are a bit different, you mm-hmm. know? It was like a group of us who started to get quite into it as opposed to just having 24 cans of Fosters. And we just became really interested in it and wanted to have something that was more interesting than lager. Yeah. And then that led to general generally like circulating the idea is like what would it be like to make it blah 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 and then i just started reading up on it and stuff like that became really uh, kind of yeah really into it so did you yeah. you went to edinburgh originally not to not to go to harriet what you were in a totally different mm. yes yeah, so i was at edinburgh University and i was studying history there right so, so you took different. a yeah a total pivot and <laughs> harriet harriet watts obviously such a such a kind of uh, i guess it's a pretty influential uh, part of British brewing. Like there's a lot of people that go through there. We've got like Will in our brewery who studied there. And yeah, yeah generally, uh, th- I guess there's quite a considerable Kestrel amount of people. Brewing. Yeah. He <laughs> 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 learned a lot in Scotland. Um, yeah. But was that kind of a, so there was kind of a way for you to explore it further, pretty close by. Were you, were you going there straight away? Like, or talking to people who were studying there? Or was it just a question of just drinking those beers? I didn't know. I didn't know anything about Harry Potter. Apart from the fact that it's like it's more like a sciencey university, yeah. whereas Edinburgh is a big university. It's very general. Like you can do those different degrees and stuff like that. I, I knew Harry Potter was there. It was like a very science oriented university, but I knew nothing about the course. Um, I knew nothing really about. You know, I, I basically started to learn things about brewing and things about the industry, so to speak, like different brews and stuff like that, while I was at university. And then that sort of built into when I left university, I ended up doing work experience at brewery. And then while I was there, I was sort of saying, How's, what's the best way of getting you know, into the industry? And they said, go do the course at Harriet Watt. Ah, you snowballed very, pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, just from quick. like trying a few beers to just like, right, yeah, I want to do this. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. I think when you look back at it, 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 it probably just seems quite quick. But then if you find something that you're interested in, you go really hard at it, you know? Mm-hmm. But I haven't really that's probably one of the only things in my life that, you know, I found something I was really interested in and then read a few books and things like that. And then it was suddenly just like, right, that's, that's what I'm doing. That's it. You know, it's very, very quick black and white thing. Yeah. It's also interesting that I think this is the, this is the fourth interview I've done. And I'm pretty sure that every single person has mentioned Sierra Nevada. (laughs) So it's like, but I remember that. That was like the first readily available, like great beer, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. You, know, you could buy that anywhere and it tasted amazing. It tasted so different. And like, I really, my dad liked English style ales and stuff like that. So at home, he'd always have, you know, bottles of whatever it was, Tribute or Speckled Hen or whatever it was, which are great beers. But then you try Sierra Nevada and you're like, you know, what the fuck is that? That tastes great. Like, why? And then I, I just loved American the culture around the American breweries was so much more interesting to me. I think as a young person especially you know you don't really want to associate with what your dad's drinking you want to associate with something new and interesting yeah. and, 
and then it develops from Sierra Nevada to then like Oscar Blues and Dogfish Head and all those breweries and you think they're so cool and then I read like um Dogfish Head the owner his book read his book and I was like oh, it's incredible I love all this shit <laughs> and then but then, and then it snowballs you know and then you're going like Hill Farmstead and tree and then as soon as like you, you look at like Treehouse and Tridium and everything, all those on Instagram, you become like obsessed with that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's a, it's a whole rabbit hole that you go down. Was that like, cause that was pretty, were you, I can't even think of like social media back then, like 10 years ago or yeah. something. And, and were those breweries pretty active on it? Were, were you? Yeah. Like Dogfish had like YouTube videos of all their beers and things like that. Oh, which is wow. pretty And then you could look, yeah, all of them had good websites and things like that. So you could, I was interested in the brewing from like a, wanting to make something perspective. Like I thought that was really interesting, but then like brands and stuff like that, I was like really into like seeing all these different American brands and like what they're about and how they do stuff. And if you look at Sierra Nevada's website, stuff like that, they had these amazing videos of like um, compilation things about parallel and things like that. And I don't know, all those big brewers out there were so advanced compared to what's happening in the UK. I mean, you had like Brewdog and Thornbridge and stuff, but it wasn't as interesting. I don't think because maybe it wasn't as interesting but for me at that time being young and new into it i like new and excited that was so new and exciting that that was the most mm. interesting thing I'd well say. i guess Brewdog really really picked up that kind of brand like how yeah. to brand something and this is so yeah. fascinating this like hearing this from you because we've been friends for a while we've had so many conversations about the beer industry and everything else um but what i've been excited to do is like dig into people's history and actual ideas and all yeah. of these things that you're telling me right now like totally reflected in what they are now and they have yeah. been and and it's really fascinating because it's just joining all the dots yeah to, like I've got like a series of questions that I was thinking and I was like I wonder how he ended up doing that and now like yeah, hearing yeah. your story about it so like obviously yeah. you you ended up going to brew in America didn't you that's right yeah so I managed to go to so the first thing, I, when I left, you know, I went to uh, Theakston's Brewery, which is a really traditional cascale brewery in Yorkshire. Oh, yeah. I know it well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like, that was uh, an interesting experience. I, I didn't really know anything at that stage. I'd like homebrewed probably, I don't know, a handful of times and stuff like that. And so that was my first professional, like the first time I went around a professional brewery and stuff like that. And that's, that's like an old school tower brewery, you know, like gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the whole process is sort of like gravity. Um, what's I don't know what's the sort of terminology where like the mash tun is higher than the kettle, and then the, the fermenters are at the bottom and stuff like that. Anyways, like really old school style, but that was pretty cool. And then went to Harriet Watt, and then from there went to Odell in Colorado for th- like three months doing an internship oh, wow. there, like work experience there, and that was fucking insane. So that just blew my mind. It, was that was that just was that literally just a mind blowing experience? Yeah, that, like, that was insane. Like that was the most formative three months I've spent 100 percent because I was like I was just obsessed with American brewing culture, the brands out there. I was like I knew all the breweries in America, like literally all of them. Like, I went to Hill Farmstead when I went there, and that was wow. in 20. I, so bad at these bloody dates, mind. Uh, <laughs> where, where <laughs> I don't, I how, how, like, how old were you? I was like 24, no. Yeah, I was 24 years old. 23, 24 years old. Okay. Yeah, so I was pretty young. And Hill Farmstead yeah. had been going for like two, three years. They didn't do any package beer or anything, apart from the mixed firm. They mm-hmm. just did like growler fills of Edward and Abner and stuff like that. 
And that was before um, they built their new brew house and their new tap room and things like that. So it was pretty early on. And I had like cans of Alchemist Heady Topper back then as well, which was like gold dust. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, so I went, I went to Odell, but then I went out to the East Coast and like checked out all those breweries. Then as soon as I was back, it was like, um, there's all these other breweries you want to check out and stuff like that, which is so mental about America is that there were so many good breweries opening the whole time that it was almost impossible to keep up. So when I was there, I was like, wow, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I go to, I don't know, in Colorado, there's some like insane breweries now in Colorado, which I didn't go to. But when I was there, I made the most of it and it was incredible. But the, I'd say the biggest thing was Odell was a f- fucking cool place. Like, really, really cool. Like, people there were incredible. They were so nice. Everything they did there was just such a high standard. Like, everything. So looking after their employees, the beer, the, the, the sort of team ethic, the team spirit, whatever, like, everything was incredible. And the quality standards were, like, ridiculous. So that was, like... If you're interested in opening a brewery, going to a world-class brewery in 23 months, you're going to go, fucking hell, this is, you know, this is what it takes to actually you know, do a proper brewery, basically. So you, like, this is, it's really interesting. So you basically were like a kid in a sweet shop over there. And it seems that you really picked up on how each brewery had its own characteristic and identity almost. They weren't just brewing beer. They were much more than that. And obviously Adele's is yeah. like this whole holistic thing of like, it's, it's yeah, from yeah. the top down. It's not just the beer that gets produced. It's the the way they look after the staff, like the way they kind of promote themselves into the community. Um, and I guess like, yeah. again, this is kind of what you've done so well over here, but I just wanted to go into that point a bit more about like the branding side. What was it that you were so impressed by, by like the American branding of each brewery? I just, I don't know. It's just like the way I think that that they make, they, for my mind back then, they made beer so much more tangible for, you know, know, for the consumer and stuff like that. I remember thinking like Oscar Blues, if you looked at their website and the cans and Cigar City, like if you looked at Cigar City, like their branding and how, I don't know, it was so, it was so much more interesting, I thought, than what was going on over here. That's not sick because it was probably just my ignorance about what was going on over here. I was just so focused on what was happening there, you know. And I, but I never really—I I have to say, it's not like to rag on Brewdog. I respect Brewdog for what they've done and stuff like that. But I was never into the whole like Brewdog vibe at all. Even mm-hmm. like, Richie at the start, I remember being like almost a bit like reticent about. So I don't know. I just found it a bit, just a bit childish. The whole thing, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Whereas in America, I found it like the oh, dog fish head. The way they did stuff was really cool, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I think Brewdog, obviously, they they found their identity, which is this punk ethos kind of, and they just they just went all out into that. But it was very... There's a, rip, a complete rip-off stone as well. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it was a, a reimagined version of, yeah. of that. And But the British market, like what you said earlier about how your dad was drinking these yeah. beers, but like... Yeah, you don't want to be part of what your dad's do. It's the same as when you're listening to music and your dad's listening to records, and it takes you a while to actually come to appreciate those things. Definitely, but it's interesting now because those beers are really what I really enjoy. Like mm-hmm. those like, same you and beers like that, like are absolutely banging. And like now we're making best bitters and like what Boxcar are doing with like reimagining like traditional styles. Like I absolutely love those beers, but nothing about those brands or 
how they were communicating what they're doing was ever any interest to me. Like they yeah. were so, this seems so boring, whatever. And then it's like these people are chucking all these hops in here. It's just, it, it was so much more interesting, I, mm-hmm. I found. So like I was really, yeah, I was very um, obsessive about like the brands and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that makes, yeah, it makes a whole heap of sense. And it's really interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, let's dig into the beer side of it. So what were you trying in America that was just blowing your mind? Because obviously, like you, you drank in the UK, like Sierra Nevada, is an absolutely awesome beer, yeah. and and tasted probably hoppier than anything you'd had at the time. But I imagine going yeah. to America and trying like fresh Adele or Treehouse yeah. must have just been an absolute mind blowing experience. So, so I think before I went there, I had, um, you know, had that you had like Dog, and I think Colonel and Beavertown were like two that were massively setting a standard in terms of the UK hoppy beers. So mm-hmm. I was like drinking those quite regularly as well. Like every time I get hold of a kernel, it was like I always found quite special because I don't know what it. I think it's like everyone in the UK who's got into beer holds kernel in such high esteem, and I do as well. Like yeah, I think totally. they're, they're like one of the breweries. Yeah, probably the brewery I look up to the most. I'd say overall in terms of what they're about and their beers and stuff like that. So uh, UK was making amazing beers, but they go over there. I think the variety or the the, the level of choice was insane as well. So you'd go to a bar and stuff like that and they'd be, you know, in Fort Collins where Odell is, they have like different bars there where there's like 50 taps, which is absurd. But mm-hmm. you just have like wall to wall of just insane beer. And it was like, it was such a big, I don't know, such an eye-opening thing. It's like in the UK, you'd really have to seek out where to find good beer to have a chance of drinking something that's good. Whereas in Fort Collins in Colorado, it was fucking everywhere. And it, it was, was just cool. beer, yeah. <laughs> well, it was great, amazing beer everywhere. Odell's beers are bloody good. Like when I was there, like being part of, you know, doing work experience there, you get all the underfills or whatever. You get like a staff allowance or whatever it is. And that's, you know, they're, they're incredible. And when you were doing that, was when was the kind of spark of wanting to, were you thinking of coming back to the UK and going, oh, I just want to work for a brewery? Or was it, I want to start my own brewery? Like, I don't want to, be working for someone else like i want to build my own thing and i want to produce my own beer before, before i went to america i decided okay. to start my own brewery yeah but before that i was interested in getting a job in another brewery but i applied for a few things didn't really work out and actually i i sort of thought i wasn't very uh experienced to get mm-hmm. a job in a brewery and I don't know how suitable I would have been for a job in the brewery. So you might as well, as well just start your own and I'd just make your own mistakes. <laughs> I, no, I, no, I might be. I, I think I might be a pain in the ass to work yeah. with as well. If you know what I mean, because I'd be like, oh, I don't know, trying to try new stuff or trying to do things the whole time, and that probably wasn't that interesting. Like people don't want that. People want stability, and you know, you know what it's like now. And in, in breweries, you want people who mm-hmm. carry out processes extremely well, like day to day. Whereas I'd be like, you know, I don't know, trying to trying to do something else the whole time, which probably is not. Right. So you were you were really attracted to the creative aspect of it. It was it wasn't like the the kind of militarized kind of yeah, engineering yeah. and drilled in procedures. It was just like I want to create stuff that's gonna like blow people's minds. I think so. I think I think I would have been too Yeah, trying to do different stuff the whole time. Which is kind of what we did at the start of Dare as well. And now we're a lot more focused on what we're doing. <laughs> okay. but, but having said that, we still, we still like at the start, we did just make one beer for like the first 
eight months, which is really helpful. And I did realize that like you have to, if you can do something well, you've got to like really focus on that and just do that. And then you, over time, you can create the process and stuff like that to be able to expand your wings a little bit and it'd be able to like try different, you know, yeah, try out different stuff. But let's bring it back to that yeah. then. Like what, like you've done your time in the US, you come back, how does day even start? Cause I don't even know this. So I don't think I've ever asked you that question. Yeah. So we, um, came back from America and then I was actively then looking for like a site to brew on, mm-hmm. you know, to start and to like get kits stuff like that. But pretty soon realized that it's really expensive. Didn't have any money, all that sort of stuff. And so we started contract brewing. Like, so I was, I moved back in with my parents in Sirencester. So then we were contract brewing at a few local breweries. You say we, who was we at that time? It was just you. <laughs> we as Daya. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me and mum. Mum was doing the accounts, which were um, not much to look at at that stage. But uh, yeah, so, so I contract brewed for like a year at really small quite average cast breweries in the local area like they were lovely people and that was a lot of fun and I actually really enjoyed that experience and that um time of yeah just figuring it out for myself and learning out because I was like taking home I came back and I was like home brewing like crazy and basically just taking right okay we're gonna start with the pale ale we're gonna start with steady body man let's take that onto commercial scale. It's not realistic to buy kit. It's not realistic to get our own premises. Let's go, you know, and, and do it on a six barrel kit or five barrel kit or whatever it was. So we, we I had two breweries that I was brewing it on, but it wasn't very good to be honest. And were you, were you just passing the recipe to the brewers in that brewery or were you going in and no, 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 I, was doing, no, 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 I, I was doing the brewing. Both of those breweries no longer exist. So it was, bit, it was a bit of a shit show, but I was doing it and uh, it was interesting. It was very like formative, but I think by then I had, I, I had, I had a really good appreciation of the, the standard that say like Beavertown Colonel, whoever, like good brewers in the UK were. And I was very sure about what was the level that you had to be at to be able to like make make it i guess because at that stage i even thought the industry is moving quickly things are moving on you know what i mean like i probably maybe wouldn't have started if i didn't i, I had the feeling that if you don't start now you, mm-hmm. you you're gonna miss it I, I i had a big sense in my mind that like if we're not i probably wasn't ready to start a brewery but no one's ever ready to start a brewery no, no one's ever ready to start a business right at the same time if we don't start now then we're going to miss this momentum. We're going to miss this train that's going on at the moment. And so you've got, you, you've got to do something, you know? So it was, it, it was, a, it was a good year. It was, a, it was quite a weird year. So I was basically just brewing at other people's breweries. Beers were okay. I saw them and I, I didn't allow the beers to go out, to be honest. I just saw them in local <laughs> markets because I knew we weren't ready for it to go mm-hmm. to London and shit like that. And as soon as, the, as, soon as we got on our own, own kit... And I knew the beer was of a standard that I wanted it to be at. Then I was like, okay, fine, you can go to London. But at the start, sometimes, you know, we would dump stuff if it wasn't good enough. Or if I didn't, if, if I wasn't so happy about it, but I thought it was, you know, 
acceptable enough it would just go to like local pubs oh like man that. that's uh that's so cool to hear that i mean that I, again i'd be quite careful like non like non-craft beer pubs so i knew people wouldn't be talking about it and things like that and then once we did get going then you could like send it to pigs ears and get it into craft beer pubs and then i think it, it was a very like natural evolution of then people being interested in the brewery and just the brand and stuff like that was so you, cool. you you were starting to build a little base at that time on those market stalls yeah it was interesting what you said about like hitting that wave because I do think, you know, kind of when we started like six years ago, coming up now, five years ago, there was definitely, that was, that felt like a big wave of like breweries coming through and like a movement yeah. and like little bars starting to open up, specializing in it where you'd have had to search for, for ages to try and find somewhere that was going to have, you know, 10 lines was a lot then of like, of different beers was mind blowing. I keep saying mind blowing. I've said it about many times, yeah, but like, it was it was just like it was just so different. Yeah, yeah. So many new breweries starting, so many new yeah. bottle shops starting as well. So many new things happening. Like that first couple of years was absolutely crazy because literally. So that, so, so basically, after we after doing the contract brewing, we then managed to get our own site, get a brew kit, and basically start properly. If you know what I mean. And that's the site. That's the site that you've well, you've just left. Are you still kind of using? But. Yeah. No, well, yeah, we're kind of using it now. Well, yeah, the brew kit and the tank's still there. And we still are in the site, but it's just was like mixed firm at the moment. Mm-hmm. But because we've moved to a unit opposite us that we're doing all the um, clean beers in. But yeah, so, so it was a very intense time, I'd say. It's pretty crazy time. It's so It's so cool to hear you talk about how particular you were about the quality of the product that you were putting out. Because, you know, mm. like, again, knowing you guys and I've seen how meticulous, uh, meticulous, metic- <laughs> meticulous, meticulous you are about yeah. your procedures. Um, mm. So it's amazing. And again, when you get, when you've got all that excitement and you're starting a new business, you really can just want to push it out there as far as possible, but you should restrain yeah. because you felt that it wasn't developed enough to, to, to go there. Yeah. I think I was, I think I was very obsessed by like, the standard that had to be, I sort of held, I think at the time, like Gamma Ray was absolute king in terms of pale ale. So yeah. we basically brewed, anyone in man for six months, eight months, just, just brewing that. And my general feeling was, if this beer is not better than Gamma Ray, we're never going to compete on price, probably. We're never going to compete on sort of volume and what we can offer to distributors and pubs and stuff like that. So it has to be better than that. And not saying we've got to that point or whatever, but like it, it was, it was very much in my mind. Like you, you have to be better than. It, I was just so focused on you, you've got to be better than everyone else there. Otherwise, what's the what are you adding to the party? Mm-hmm. You know, what what are you actually adding to the whole scene? And even then, it felt I, I don't know when we started, it felt crowded in terms of what was happening in brewing. But now there's so many new places that have opened. I. I don't know if it feels less crowded or it probably is as crowded, but I don't know. There's still so much opportunity, I think, but it, it's a hard one to articulate because back then, you know, if you take our local market, for example, our local market was very, very different to what it is now even. You know, I couldn't go to Sunset where my parents said I could not buy a good beer. It's nothing, no pub sold any beer that was like decent. There was no bottle shops or whatever. Now there's like wine shops selling our beers and loads of great breweries, you know, in a small town, which is replicated across the whole of the UK. And I think one of the best things that's happened from this whole movement 
is that smaller towns have got access to really good, like high quality beer, yeah. which is a really cool thing. I think there's like literally, uh, obviously through what's going on at the moment, I've been speaking to a lot more bottle shops in individual places because like distribution is kind of gone down as it were. Um, and you yeah. do find these, these little pockets that have these little bo- local bottle shops that have a really strong sense of community around them. And, you know, that guy's curating yeah, yeah, yeah. a beer list to all his followers who are just in this little town. Um, yeah. And that's a really, really beautiful thing. Um, you yeah. kind of glossed over Steady Rolling Man here being your first beer because yeah. that is, Yeah. I mean, you know. That's I, like Arsenal. For me, it's one of the. It's it's like it, it's it's king. It's a, it's such it's such yeah. a great beer, and like I think you can obviously taste the years yeah. of experience that's yeah. gone into that. So what what how did that come to be? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's like the the iterations and the years of like brewing it over and over again. It's probably the same with Sonoma. It's probably the same with I don't know Don Zocco's Northern Hellers or whatever. Like beers that have just been so thought out by the breweries in their own minds and like just constantly trying to improve and things like that. And like, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, obviously it's recipe to, to an extent, but then it's process and how it fits all the mm-hmm. ingredients that you're using in terms of like, we have a house yeast, which seems to love that beer. You know, I don't know why that is, but it just is, you know, but it's just like, it's a constant evolution of something and so much focus on that beer just to get it better and better and better. And we do a lot of one-off stuff now, which is great. But there's something about brewing something over and over again and constantly trying to like tweak and tweak and tweak and get better and get better. And it's so satisfying. And when it's good, it's, it's really, it's really good. It's just, you know, Sonoma's absolute fucking banger. And everyone knows, you know, it's like, it just, yeah, it's a, it's a really proud thing for us as a brewery to make something that people can go back to and really enjoy. Because I think a lot of the times, you know, Daya and Track are probably known for that, you know, one-off specials and probably quite out there beers, which is great. But at the end of the day, Steady for us and Sonoma for you, is, is that's your business, really. And as we were discussing mm-hmm. before we went on, um, before your recording, Steady would normally make up like 50% of our seller. So we yes, we normally have so much of that on keg and cans or whatever. But it's still like absolutely, fl- it, it, it does well on keg for all our customers who want it on keg and want it on you know the pub but then in cans online it still does really really well because people want that dependable beer that they can go to and you know just have a really good pale ale and i think was this was this like like going right back to its inception was this literally the first beer yeah, yeah. everything was steady oh yeah so when we contract really? through the only beer we did was steady so how did you come to like just one like the ABV that you wanted to hit, like the hops that you wanted to hit. What was the process behind that? Originally, it was different hops. The ABV, I think, came from when I was in at Hill Farm Centre drinking their pale ale at five point two percent, and it was it was really really good. And I was like, yeah, I want the beer to be something like this. Um, the hops originally were different to what they are now, and now it's much more of a blend because we couldn't get hold of the hops that we wanted so it's much more of a blend of hops but the overall profile is is obviously what we want which is quite interesting actually like because sometimes yeah. you think okay like make the most make a really juicy pale ale just put like citra 
I don't know, Galaxy and Simcoe, whatever it is, but it's like Mosaic's only the really big, like big hop in that beer. Like we don't, I guess Amarillo's mm-hmm. in there as well, but there's some quite random hops in there to like make up the whole profile, which I, which we quite like. Um, Cause you've got a, uh... Can I? Can I? Is it like common knowledge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hot yeah, yeah we've got steady rolling, man. Because you've got Equ- you've got Equinot in there, haven't you? Equinot in there, yeah, yeah. Which brings a kind of like oh, I'm gonna go like all singer songwriter, a quiet intensity about it. Like it brings yeah quite a lot of uh, punchy flavors. Yeah, I think it's the blending of all the hops which actually mm. adds to that beer. But that's one of our only beers where we have like a proper blend of hops. Yeah, like a lot of our IPAs are just two hops, and we keep it really simple. Try and let them really sing, and like into the haze. I just had here Citra Mosaic, uh, Citra Simcoe. Um, invoice me for the microphone is Citra and uh, Mosaic. Like, which I think with other beers, try and keep it really simple. With that beer, it's like it's a nice amalgamation of different things, and there's quite a lot of challenges in the brew house to try and keep that. As you know, what it's like with a core brand, keeping that consistent, and then dealing with different factors involved and keeping something consistent is quite an interesting challenge. Well, well, when you're on a small scale, like the thing about, you know, big scale breweries have core beers and they have really strict processes and they have all the engineering and equipment put in place to make sure that that beer is going to be as consistent as possible. But when you're on a small scale, that can yeah. be a lot more challenging. And if people are drinking it, like one batch after the other, after the other, after the other, they're going to notice yeah. flavor and how it changes and how it develops. So, you can generally get a more yeah. cr- a critical kind of consumer than you normally would. And I know like, as you were yeah. a small brewery and a, probably a one man band, you know, just yeah, or, like boil time, like temperatures and all of that kind of stuff. You don't, you might not have the total yeah, yeah. control that you would. Um, so what yeah. do you think if you drank the first batch of steady now to, uh, to what you brew now, what would you, would you spit it out? Or would you think it mean? I think I think maybe like the first one, yeah. But the we quickly became pretty. It quickly became pretty good. I think the biggest difference would be going from dried yeast to wet yeast, which we went really early. So Gareth joined quite early. So mm-hmm. Gareth, he was head brewer at Gloucester Brewery, but before that, he like did a PhD in some microbiology thing. So he was really comfortable lab wise, yeast wise, and stuff like that, which is actually complete godsend because. We, you know, as you guys we were like obsessively reading about what's happening, you know, what tree I'm doing, what tree house doing, what are the hill farms are doing. It's like, okay, well, they've got these Vermont yeasts or the London ale yeast or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? And we're like, oh, fucking hell, we need to get away from this dry yeast. We need to have an in-house wet yeast. That was like, became a very, we quickly realized we needed that for like the overall profile of the beers. So we just went for it. And we was like, it was like three employees. We had like, we were maintaining an in-house wet culture, which for people in production will know is like quite a difficult thing to do. It's quite mm-hmm. a stressful thing to do, especially on a small scale. Um, but we committed to it. And then that's been the same, our, our same house culture, which has made a massive difference to the beer. It's, but I, I would say like going back to the recipe, it just came into my mind. It's like, I think throughout my experiences, like different places, I picked, I tried to pick out different things that I liked about different beers and, and then went with, went, went with trying to amalgamate those into a perfect panel, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So like different experiences with different breweries or different experiences with different drinking experiences or whatever. I tried to like put piece together all of those like good experiences and then try and like put that into one beer. That, that was kind of like the whole genesis behind doing it 
Um, well, I think, I think, I think you did it. Like, <laughs> I think you did it, man. And I think what you were talking about yeast there, like, I actually think that your beers, when I drank them would just felt so different to anyone else's at the time that they, they just had that soft kind of like cloudy gentleness to them and like a little yeah. bit of sweetness that, that just were way different to what everyone else was producing. I think like four or five years ago, I just don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you start, you, you know, you obviously had that dialed in. It's something that we've only really started doing recently. I kind of said it on another episode, mm. but um, it's just a game changer. It's just a total game changer. Mm. If you want that, if you want that like cloudy, soft beer, like East Coast IPA, then it feels just totally necessary. When we first, when we first made those, when we first made the, this basically just brewing steady, that wasn't necessarily our goal. But then as we were like learning about different things, I was going, it was so, I, I don't know, like we'd read stuff and then we'd try it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's a lot more, okay, I don't know, it'd be a lot more thought out. But I think that the fact that we, we were prepared to try so much different stuff back then was probably a really positive thing because we accelerated our learning very quickly. Like we'd read stuff online, we'd look at whatever was happening in different breweries and stuff like that. And be like, okay, we've got to try this, we've got to try this, we've got to try this. And that was a, yeah, you have some really harsh lessons in there as well because things that don't work is really you know, brutal, especially when you're, you know, when you're starting up, it's actually like checking away a batch of beer is brutal, but you learn quite quickly because you're constantly trying new stuff. And try, you, you know, you, you, you're keeping the same recipe because you know the recipe's good, but you're trying to like process wise, trying to like change things or extract different things from different parameters in the process and things like that. So, yeah, there's there, there was, it, it was a long, it was a long process, but. I think the, the, one of the best things is that we focused on one style and one beer. And from our outset, we're basically saying, right, we're going to make parallels, we're going to make IPAs within about three, two or three months of making them on our, on our old kit. Like, we were like, right, this is the style we're going for. We're going for full juice isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. Like, so- <laughs> and what were you noticing, you know, when you got on that, on your own kit and you started putting your own beers out uh, did you, like you were, were you so kegging only then or were you tap room yeah, only? Yeah. We kegged only and then we did some mobile canning but we had a really bad experience with mobile canning which really yeah, put I was us gonna off ask you we about had to that. Dump, we had to recall like two batches of beer which is such a headache and mm-hmm. just shit so we sat but that's a testament that's a testament to what you you know, your quality control because you, you could have let them just sit in the market and they, they would have been forgotten about eventually, but you were yeah. adamant that they, 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 ha- they all had to come back at a great cost to you as a small brewery. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I'd imagine most people would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, you would do the same thing. I did say, I'm just, we were just so embarrassed about it. It was like, oh, fucking hell. Such a, it felt like such a rookie mistake and it was a rookie mistake. We were so pretty naive back then I'd say, but, um, we managed to get over that and then like can uh, uh, keg for a bit again then get our own canning line in as soon as we got our own canning line in and we got the right people running the canning line then we were fine you know yeah. we didn't have those issues again and like the styles that we were making were so susceptible to oxidation so it was like a double you know it, 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 it was doubly as bad getting other people to can your beer and then your styles of beer being so susceptible to oxidation then you're you know it, it was a really bad situation Ooh. 
you know, when you were producing those beers, those first batches, what was people's responses? Were you starting to feel that people were really responding positively? Yeah, I think so. I think that was the first time we understood, we started to gain traction from literally just putting up photos of hazy beer, which sounds so simple. <laughs> it was like that, but then like, you literally put up a photo of a beer that's cloudy in a glass and people were like, I want to try that. <laughs> it's mad to think about it, but it's true. Um, so that was that was cool, and then we we you know we did collaboration with Vernon pretty early on. High Plains Drifter. Yeah, so we were like, oh, that's great. Um, yeah, we started doing collabs just generally getting steady like to really good standard and open the tap room which is great so then people come on site and enjoy it and have a good time and kind of see meet the people behind the beer and kind of see what we're about and there's always a good vibe in the tap room like, it's always fun it's always we try and be really welcoming and everyone's completely you know come here spend a night just you know relax and yeah we want to you know we really really care about what we're doing on the brewing side but at the end of the day we want to have share a beer with people and have a good time. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not, we're not trying to take it. We take what we do seriously, but it's not trying to be like, let's sit down and talk about beer all night. You know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be fun, enjoyable and sociable and, and community driven whole family, bring your dogs, bring everyone. Let's have a, you know, have a beer and have a good time. Yeah. It's weird. Like talking about all this kind of like early day, I say early days, obviously people have been brewing for a long time, but when we were talking about yeah, like yeah. that kind of wave of breweries and, hazy mm. ipas and all this kind of stuff there was definitely yeah. it's crazy to think that there was a start to it which wasn't that long ago you, you rarely get involved in the start of a movement in in anything and, and i think we were so small in a way that we went on the radar a little bit because like cloud water and vernon were starting, were making those styles as well mm-hmm. but i would say like we were using like a a what has become a like hazy yeast to use and like in-house and brewing those styles like really we were brewing them in 2016 which is quite early on but then like bigger brewers were coming out with hazy ipa versions which really i I found quite frustrating at the time because i felt like we were making like really good representation of style and being really genuine about it because we wanted to make those beers Mm -hmm. but then people were coming out with like here's our one-off um seasonal release it's a hazy vermont blah 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 and i was like you know, we're, you know, we're doing it properly. I, I felt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, uh, you, you mentioned high planes drifted there and uh, this sounds really geeky, but I remember that kind of like setting a bit of a fire in the beer scene. Like in yeah. Manchester, we, we had a couple of, I was working behind bars at that time. I think I was, I was obviously involved in the brewery side, but kind of like more part time. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So I was working at track pretty much two months after Sam opened um, but it was more like kind of because it was one again it was a small team I was kind of doing more the sales side and he couldn't afford to employ someone straight like on a wage because he was a yeah, one-man yeah. band and producing a small amount yeah. of beer so but I was you know having a lot of conversations in bars and stuff like that and I remember High Plains Drifted coming out yeah. and again Double IPA wasn't like this huge huge thing I think like Cloudwater had been doing the Double IPA series Verdant had obviously yeah. just started out um, yeah and I think at that time, everyone was just thinking, oh, a double IPA is just, it's just they just throw hops in it and that's all that, that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. like, no, there is so much more to that. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. And that beer was actually, it was genuinely really good. Like, if we tried it now, we would say it's bloody good as well. Yeah. Like, it was good. I think also that then, like, double IPA was new and interesting. And not to say it's not now, but it's so, it's such a, so many people are making double IPA now. Like, we probably brewed four double IPAs in the last month. Whereas, yeah. you know, in 2016, releasing a double IPA, which was really soft, really juicy. That was, that, that was, you know, when we do collabs now, it's like, I, I think you're in the same boat. Like you're trying to find something interesting to do. You're trying to find something that you're going to learn from. And it's great to hang out with other breweries and you learn so much from it. And there's so much value in collaborations, but you still want to try something different. Back then, doing a double IPA was different. Mm, do you know what totally. I mean? Like, that was a great premise for doing a collaboration. Like a hazy and, Vermont style double IPA as well. Was, it was, yeah, yeah. Hardly anyone was doing that. And Burden were already on like a tangent that was slightly ahead of us, I'd say. Like mm-hmm. they were more recognized. They had cans out in the market. We didn't have cans really in the market. Um, that was off. I think that was our first um, mobile canning run was Hyper Drifter, and that one went okay. That was probably <laughs> some oxidized. No, that was definitely some oxidized cans. We had to replace, <laughs> <with the> cans. <laughs> but <laughs> then we had some real issues with the mobile cans. But yeah, um, yeah, there, there, there was there was definitely that was surprising for us. Like when we released that beer, I remember going to Craft Beer Rising, and the reason we went to Craft Beer Rising was to try and chat to distributors, you know, gain access, you know, to different bars and pubs and stuff like that. Like basically like almost like a sales trip, you know, yeah. whereas like beer festivals now is basically for the customers to try the beers really. Mm-hmm. It's not, there's not much sales involved, I wouldn't say, but you, you probably have a different perspective being, you know, running the sales at track. But mm-hmm. back then that was very much like, let's put ourselves in front of people, you know, and pe- yeah, people went absolutely mad for Ben Swift. And that's the first time I sort of, experience fans and beer geeks and things like that which was interesting as well you know people like going mad for it i think that's where we met for the first time wasn't it craft beer calling could have been yeah, yeah no no no, no. Uh, craft beer rising i'm talking about craft beer craft rising beer. okay yeah sorry yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of newcastle um oh wow that is totally different then because craft beer rising is like it's a, it's, it's a sales pitch yeah, yeah you have to pay to be there yeah i remember we lost money over the weekend but like we gained a lot of like Johnny from uh, Craft Beer Channel did like a um, review of the beer and things mm-hmm. like that. Like, it was like a really like seminal moment for us. Matt Curtis there drinking the beer and being like, oh, this is great. And I was like, you know, things are kicking off here. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's, 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 it's so cool to hear about those like first, yeah. like bristling moments of excitement of getting your beers um, out there and stuff. Back then, honestly, that, that was fucking huge. Cause like, when I was doing the, when, I, when I was doing like the um, contract brewing, I would go and I got a friend who owns a pub and he'd do like a piece night at the pub and I'd be allowed to take my Linda and set up a keg and I'd like sell like one pint of my like contract brewed steady rolling man. I remember one night, you know, like if I did like fifteen pints the night, it was like a classic night. Oh my I remember God, one, that's I amazing. Like one pint and then someone like there was a local chef who was like quite a big deal and his wife tried it and was like this like the most disgusting thing i tasted i was just so it was like a country pub in the middle of nowhere it was so demoralizing that's why now when people call up and like do you want to buy the beer i'm like Fuck, yeah you can buy whatever you want memory yeah 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 i just i'm in my mind it was it was very different back then it's very different and like things have changed so much and uh we're so thankful for that do you know what i mean i'll never forget 
I'm sure every brewery like us is in a very fortunate position where we have a lot of demand and people are really interested in our beers. I'll never forget not having that demand and people yeah. are not interested at all. Yeah. And so it, we never want to be unapproachable or put ourselves on a pedestal, which is not who we are as people, but also what we're about, you know, as a business. Cause we know that it's, it's yeah, it was, it was really difficult at the start, but that challenge was really exciting as well. You know, like if you start trying, man, it's, fucking, it's, it's, it's fun back then, you know? Yeah, totally. And, and new, like, you just don't know what you do. I remember doing like when we first started doing like big double IPAs and yeah. you don't really have the reputation to set like you, they're expensive so you're like trying to sell this stuff and it's like super expensive to people who have no idea who you are um and you're trying to pitch it as this like really hazy exciting uh thing and they're like uh yeah there was there's a lot of that there's also another challenge i think that we both grown with is that people talk about the peer and hype it up so much it's like can you live up to what people's expectation is and I think we felt that as well as like people started talking about our beer a lot, which is amazing. We were so grateful and stuff like that. But it's like, you know, can we live up to what people are expecting from us as well? That's a bit of an internal thing. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, fucking hell, people think this is bloody great. Like, we'd better be bloody great, you know? But yeah. we, were set, we were setting standards so high for ourselves as well. So it's like a, it's like a dual thing going on, you know? I think, yeah, I guess it's an acceptance of the standard that you set is of the highest caliber so therefore yeah. that should translate into the beer being of the highest caliber because you wouldn't want to put it out otherwise um yeah. but like talking about that like you guys have been so consistent and i think i've told you this numerous times but like as far as hoppy beards and ipas go i don't think you know personally definitely one of my favorites in the in the country if not worldwide like and and i think yeah. they has such a characteristic for their beers as well which mm-hmm. i'm sure that everyone who's listening to this uh, will attest to. Now, a huge part of what they are has come from their tap room. For those that have been there and lucky enough to go there, it's always such a good atmosphere. The beer's a killer, the people are having a good time, and they were early doing it. There wasn't really many other breweries doing it, say, four or five years ago. And these guys grew their reputation organically. I mean, they are set on an industrial state in Cheltenham and have managed to turn that into somewhat of a destination. I asked Theo more about that here and how that came to be. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the first time, and this is our interview with Theo Frey. But I just want to dive into a bit to the taproom side of things because, again, that yeah. was not really being done at all in the UK. Um, yeah when you set up that and was that something a translation of what you'd seen in america that you wanted to bring to the uk so tap room that was definitely um a big take back from america as well because every brewery you went to in america had a tap room every single brewery you know if it when i was in colorado so i was in fort collins so two massive breweries there odell and new belgium but within fort collins there was a crazy amount of breweries there like over 10 breweries and it wasn't that big a town and every, it doesn't matter how big, big or small you were, what styles of beers you're doing, everyone had a tap room. And I was just thinking, like, why, why is this not a thing in the UK? Is it a licensing thing or a law thing or whatever it is? But there's no, law, there's no laws or there's no licensing against breweries in the UK doing it. And on-site consumption is going to be 100% or should be the most profitable way of, making, of turning over your stock and 
and making money. And plus you have that ability to show people what you're doing, talk to people a bit, you know, this is what we're about. This is what we're doing. People can see the brewery. People can see the people behind it. And you've got that whole experience of drinking fresh beer on site. And if we're going to make the beers we want to make, which is IPAs and Pedals, which 100% freshness was like at the key of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what we do now, like on our cans or social media, whatever, like it's so focused around freshness, then what's a better experience than being at the brewery and drinking that beer where it's going to be, should be in perfect condition and as fresh as possible. So everything in my mind was like, we had, we 100% we got to the tap room as soon as we opened. Like it just, it made so much sense to me and no one else was doing it. And that was a good way of differentiating ourselves at the start. One, doing keg, which again sounds funny, but in our local area, loads of pubs, so many pubs who take our beer now were like, we'll never take your beer because you do keg, you don't do cars, it's too expensive, all this sort of shit. And we're like, okay, got to stick to your guns here. This is what we think is best for the beer. This is, you know, Penel should be, you know, Penel's good in cars, but like a 5% Penel when you're starting out, keg is going to be the, probably the preferred way of doing it. So, yeah, Taproom became an essential part of what we were doing. And I was very, at, 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 at a certain stage, I became very fixated on on-site retail as well and trying to make that a reality for the brewery and almost cr- trying to create that, if you know what I mean, with how we were selling stuff and how we were you know, putting out stuff and things like that. that it's hard retail. to believe. It's hard to believe that there was like a time where no one was doing it. Like there was, I mean, I say no one, there was very, very, very few people doing it. And it's crazy what you guys did because, I mean, what was the first night like when you opened? Was the people there or was it like just a couple of people just having a few beers and just... Yeah. You know what's really weird is like the memory came up on my Instagram today. You know how <laughs> Instagram would do like memories? Yeah. So four years ago, there was, um, I put out an Instagram story today saying we'd moved on a bit. It was like a, I don't know if you'd be able to, be able to see it. it like oh a, yeah, the board, uh, the blackboard. Like yeah. board, and there was no beer from our brewery. So it said, this batch was gypsy brewed at X brewery, beer from our kit coming soon. So that was four years ago. Oh, there was man. more food options than there was beer options. It's just, it just weird, like looking back. So there was probably <laughs> 10 people or something like that. And that grew really organically and really, that's one of our proudest things is how the tap room's grown. And just the atmosphere there is great. And like people, people have met people there and people who created friendships there. And that kind of sounds a bit cheesy, but it's fucking cool. Like, no, I think that's the, I think that's the most important part. People. Like yeah, that's yeah. the most important part of what a tap room is. It's a, it's, you know, it keeps harking back to that thing of community. Like that's what yeah. beer does bring people together. And I think when you give people a nice environment to be in and like that kind of relaxed and then also an incredible product at the end of it, what's not yeah. to enjoy. and I, I i was like i'm not going to say mind blown again because i uh i've said that about five times but uh when no. coming to your tap room and also hearing about it you know you managed to create yeah. a destination tap room on an industrial yeah. state in cheltenham <laughs> it's like it's not things that- not known for beer at all no. like it's, it has no there's some breweries here that are like really solid cast beer breweries but none of them are like in the public eye, so to speak, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that that was a really organic thing of the tap room 
suddenly attracting people who wanted something, you know? Cheltenham's yeah. quite, I, like, I live in Cheltenham and the brewery's in Cheltenham, so I'm not going to slag off Cheltenham as a place, but it is quite, a, it doesn't have that many left-field stuff going on. And a lot of comments would be like, oh, this sort of thing you'd find in Bristol, because Bristol's only an hour away, or this sort of thing you might find in Leeds or Manchester, do you know what I mean? But there was nothing, you know, Cheltenham's edges the wrong word to use, but there's nothing sort of like slightly different from sort of normal high street culture, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. an independent business on an industrial state with really tasty beers and a fun place to go and drink. And that's good value as well. You know, taproom's a good value. You know, if you want to drink really good beer and it's, it's most of our beers like four quid, you know, under whatever percentage that we serve it in pints, it's like four quid a pint, whatever it is. So it's, it, you know, I think everyone's getting a good experience for that. We're getting all the customers direct to us, which is great. And we've got that, you know, ability to then introduce new people to our business. Like that. But they're getting really good, you know, time there, but also good value as well, which is cool. Yeah. Well, on the business side, obviously it's just incredible for a brewery. And I know that you guys, again, you didn't really bow to anyone on the distribution side and stuff. You, when you did cans, you were just purely at the tap room and you've, you've kept yeah. it that way f- until really you've gone through your, your upscale. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, speak a bit about that business side because it, it definitely ruffles some feathers, doesn't it? The people that are thinking that you're trying to cash in and make this money and stuff. It's like, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. essential. If you want to drink like really good, high quality beer and you want yeah. to carry on producing that, we have to have a tap room to finance that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the cans thing is interesting because... We were quite um, strong on our stance early on, which I think helped us. Mm-hmm. If you send a clear message of what your plan is, I think it's a lot easier to then just say that you know there's a definitive line of what you're doing, as opposed to if you're a bit like wishy-washy about it, then it can be quite confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do feel that we couldn't really service independent bottle shots, which we want to do now as much as possible because of the situation we were in, we didn't have enough cans. We had a lot of demands. So we just said, right, we'll just do it ourselves. But we, you know, w- which we needed to do for the first few years of business as well. So, and it's not like we were making much money, you know, we didn't have much, we, I don't think we, you know, we haven't been in like loads of profit each year. It's just what we've had to do to be able to grow and to be able to create, you know, an environment that we have now where we've got, you know, bigger brew kits and staff that are fantastic and stuff like that. So I, I, I saw it as a necessity at the start. If we can sell these beers on site, we'd be absolutely mad not to. Yeah. Because it's allowed us to grow quicker than we, what we'd imagined as well, because we've had, we've had that demand and we've had that momentum and it's like, okay, let's, 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 let's get to a level which is more comfortable now than otherwise, or we could slug it out for 10 years and get there, you know? And what was the, you know, was it just literally word of mouth that, that led people to your door? Or was there any sense of like reaching out to communities and being like, oh, we're here? I think it was a mixture of different things. I mean, we, we did a bit of advertising with local um, online publications and things like that. But I, don't, I, I think a lot of it was word of mouth and then social media. And I, I think we benefited from Cheltenham not having that much going on in terms mm-hmm. of that sort of thing. So then we, were, we immediately stood out as a place that people could go to and people could find something a bit more interesting than just going to a pub in town and stuff like that. But I don't know, what was it like in 
Manchester because your tap room must have been open and <laughs> Cloudwaters was open. I remember coming to your tap room after a, uh, a tap takeover tap at Heat and Hops. Yeah, I remember that well. Uh, yeah, I mean, ours was literally, it was a nightmare. You know, we were in the brewery. It was oh, really yeah, hard yeah. to get it like aesthetically looking right. It was like yeah. all the brewers have been working you know their asses off all week and then on a friday it's like right we've got a clean down put put lights yeah. up put this that and the up and then we yeah, just set yeah. up a little bar at the back and it it, yeah. it was it was hard work and obviously the the thing with like under those arches is you have the door open in winter and it's absolutely freezing you have the door open in summer and it's just like kind of dark and dingy yeah. so you, you don't really get like there's no seasonality to it but Cloudwater originally, yeah, you know, yeah. we're just doing doing a little bit in their tap room. But the the, the first kind of like big uh, brew taps I went to were... They were next to you as well, weren't they? Were there. Oh, yeah, they had the, the barrel store. But before that, they were up at the brewery. But then there was one called Blackjack, you know, uh, Blackjack Brewery? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we, you know, they had to have like, do it once a month, DJs, loads of different beers, like everyone just getting together. And it was such a good time. Uh, yeah. and then so we started trying to throw parties in the arch and stuff but I mean you quickly start running out of space because we were brewing in there yeah, yeah. and then having a tap room in there um, yeah. so yeah it quickly becomes not feasible so when you're going to move are you going to move to a new space right yes yeah yeah we are yeah so you're, are you, you're planning to have a big tap room in there oh man like it has to be a central part of what we do next like yeah, it's been yeah. a dream, personally, a dream of mine, like to ha- yeah. come into your, your tap room and just seeing just how, how good a time people are having. Like just, it's just such a nice environment and then enjoying incredibly good beer. And, and if that's your own beer, you know that you can represent it in the best possible way. You can try yeah, it before yeah. it goes on. And if there's any problem with it, you can pull it and you can do really exciting stuff. One-offs. It's so interesting how that like, we're only talking about four years ago when we started our tap room and now I feel like it's got to be a cornerstone of most small breweries businesses yeah. is to start a tap room because it's become now the norm and a lot of that must be to do also with the customers expectations of what you know people are way into being like people are so much wanting to be it now mm-hmm. and they want to go to the tap rooms they want to they want to be at the brewery you know each group sitting on a table in a tap room is going to be the person who's dragged all their mates there and going like, look at that, there's a tank there and then there's this going on and da, da, da. And like, I was that person like, yeah, how long ago, eight years ago, and you were that person. And now we're lucky to be running those spaces where we have such interested people, which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, obviously the current situation is a really tricky one. And I'm, uh, I wonder if you could kind of die because you guys had a big, new launch of your new tap room and I, I'm, I've been lucky yeah. enough to see it just before it was but it's, I, I saw it in like construction stages but it looked like it was going to be incredible and that people I think it's yeah. building excitement for when it will be open but I know how, how is that going yeah that was really sad actually because we literally were going to open at the end of March so we had everything there everything ready to go from a financial point of view pretty frustrating because you basically spent all the money mm-hmm. building a new tap room so the tap room is going to be double the size inside, at least double the size inside, and then a massive outside space as well. So, um, yeah, we were ready to go, and it would have been epic, I think, like really epic. The new tap room yeah. is going to be epic. But at the same time, it is what it is. And now I'm, I'm very much in two minds about what we should do or what is the right thing to do. And we're definitely not going to rush anything going back 
we're definitely going to see what other people do probably and see how it works with with um operating under you know the restrictions that are going to be in place and things like that and i'm not in the last like week or so i've kind of been thinking and i'm not i'm not 100 sure if we will open for um for like draft beer mm-hmm. i'm thinking maybe we'll just do like click and collect or stuff like that but yeah i don't know like one how socially responsible it is Two, how viable it is like if people have to uh or you know you, you you're gonna be everyone's gonna be distance right and then you're gonna order you're gonna you're gonna have a time slot and it's gonna be table service mm-hmm. and i don't know what our staffing levels will be like and things like that so i, I it's a very it'll be a lot more complicated than what it was a year ago when you just Fling open the doors, get the beer pouring great, and then everyone's having a great time. And it's, I, it's really I, hard I to even know, think about. It. That that will be lost in the in, in that setup. So I don't know. The genesis of our tap room will be lost if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really yeah. it's a really hard thing to think about because obviously it's the thing that drives us as well. Like being able to see people uh, enjoying your beers in the space they were brewed is like it's a dream. It's it's what you want. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, 100%. fingers crossed we can get to a place that, that, you know, we can get back to that stage. Um, what, what, what feeling about your tap room? Do you think you will? I think, I think I've been thinking a lot about like how to digitize things that like, again, like click and collect What's the most sanitary way of doing it? Like, do you yeah, yeah. limit the amount of people you have in at a time? Like, do you just go like, right, you've got an hour slot. There's 20 people that we can have in. You have to book your slot, yeah. you come in, you know, all of those things. And then you, you know, do you have an app that you order from and we bring your beers to the table and yeah, all of these kind of things. But they're really, really hard questions and we're a small business. So, you know, they're quite advanced things to put into process as well. And, and does it warrant think, being open for that as well? You know, and that's one of the most difficult things is like, how do you then staff that and how do you make sure that everything's clean the whole time and how do you create a safe environment for like a very select group of, you know, I, I think personally you'd have to have a system where people, um, you know, order or, or uh, reserve a table for an hour period or whatever, mm-hmm. which is fine. That could work. But then how do you staff everything around that? I don't, I don't know how we could do that in a safe and I don't know, decent way. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't know yeah it's a really tricky one and i think you know the the more that we can all kind of share ideas and talk about it the hopefully better it'll be for the consumer as well and because we want those guys to enjoy it in a safe place where they feel safe and happy to to be there um right let's take take a little bit of a tangent here because the other thing that you kind of picked up from american breweries was the aesthetic of these places and you got involved with tom pretty early on was he like literally so I wondered if you could speak a bit. So Tom is your artist and he's kind yeah, of, yeah. he's evolved with the beers really and, and his 100%. role in the brewery. Um, yeah. So I wonder about if you could talk about his, your relationship with him and how that came to be. Yeah. Yeah. So Tom's, he, he's an amazing, amazing person. And I feel very fortunate to be able to work with him. Uh, he was at art school with a friend of mine and I literally was chatting to her quite close to when we were starting the brewery and I had a very clear sort of idea of what I wanted aesthetically, but I would never be able to put that down on paper, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Like I knew what kind of what we want to look like, 
and da da da, and what I wanted the branding to be like. But he sort of was able to bring that to life. And I think in the last two years, the way that our relationships developed has allowed that to really come to fruition, if you know what I mean. So now we're releasing stuff, which I think is very much where I want us to be in terms of the aesthetic and the, um, the, the, the amount of different beers we're doing at the moment and also the differences in his design. And there's an illustrative character the whole time, not necessarily just like one character, but it's, it's like he draws everything, which is pretty cool, I think. But then it's like, it's nice to look at. It's clean. It's, it's fun. It's kind of quirky as well. It's a bit weird sometimes. Obviously. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, out there. <laughs> but it's, it, there's like an amazing illustrative aspect to it, which I'm so, yeah, I'm so, I, I just, I'm so happy that he works with us basically. Yeah. I mean, he's left his, I mean, he is as, as much dayer, I guess, as the beer in the glass. Like he, all the mm. characters that you guys use now are so, yeah. you know, you recognize brand, brand is so important. Like every can design is so important to each yeah. brew. Like if you have good designs, 100%, you're going to get your beer in front of people. No matter mm-hmm. what the beer tastes like, the beer tastes good. Then you can create that momentum of like the brand and the design and stuff like that. But your branding is, it's, it's such a cliche, but it's so key. Mm-hmm. You've got to have the right branding. And I think, one of the other massive aspects is you've got to have a branding that fits your whole ethos, you know, the whole brewery, the whole concept, the whole ethos, what you're trying to do. And like you were saying that within our beers, there's like a definitive day of taste or day of mouthfeel or whatever it is. So within the beers, we're trying to have like a lineage between the beers of like how they taste and how they feel and stuff like that. And that in my mind is I'm trying to replicate that with the branding as well. Like even though he does some weird and quirky things, I want this <laughs> This that the, you can see when you see a can, you know it's us. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, totally. And you yeah. do, and they're, they're so recognisable. I think probably you and well, I think it's such a cool relationship though, where you've kind of found each other at that starting point, mm. and you feel you both understand each other, and then you can grow out of that. I think the only other, I mean, obviously Beaver Town were a big one with their yeah. uh, his work, amazing Nick Dwight. Yeah, and then. Insane. James at left-handed giant as well, where, you know, you've got the character of the artist alongside yeah. the beers. Um, so I, I emailed him last week, James said like, he is just, for me, he is smashing it. Yeah. He's incredible. He's so incredible. Stuff is brilliant. And the brew pub stuff I absolutely love. Like, and I, I respect and love so much artwork in the industry, if you know what I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. a massive, um, kind of what we were discussing at the beginning of the conversation is like, I really respect that aspect of it. Whereas I think some people are just like, Oh, it's all about the beer. It's like, it is about the beer, but at the end of the day, the whole package is, is, you know, that is the whole package. It's not just the beer, is it? It's like what's in front of you and like the whole experience of it. Yeah. Uh, so and I think, important. I think, I think like you just said, it's that it has to match the whole ethos of who you are as a brand. And yeah. And a brewery has become a lot more than just the beer in a glass now, I think. You Definitely. know, it, it is an experience. And, and when, when people are coming into the brewery, you want it to be an experience and, and something they're going to yeah. take away. We obviously did the uh, exhibition in the Tate Cafe where all our beers were on with, with Pig's Ears, which are a distributor. And yeah. we went and showcased all, like, our can artwork and yeah. each beer was on tap. And, I mean, that's the level it's got to. That's the Tate in London. 
bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing, but it's... you should know. Ne- you should also never get that many breweries and artists in a room. No, <laughs> especially Tom. <laughs> Tom and Dave. Was, was, that was actually a really cool thing because I feel like he has given his heart and soul to this whole project, and at mm-hmm. the start, there was no real need. Well, there's no right or reason for him to care so much or be so involved and stuff like that. But he's such an amazing, he's, he's a massive, massive part of what we do. And yeah. he's such, he's so close with, that like he comes to the brewery. He doesn't live anywhere near here. He lives in Suffolk, so he's quite far away. But he'll come to the brewery and he's, he's so, yeah, he's such a big part of, you know, he's friends with Neil, he's friends with Ben, he's friends with everyone, you know what I mean? Like he's such a big part of what's going on. And um, him, us going to the Tate was a massive thing for him. He's an artist, he's an artist, he's not, you know. And so I said to him, we're doing a thing at the Tate. And that was a huge thing for him. Like, he was like, this is, this is a big deal for me, which, which I, that felt great for me, being able to give him that experience through the brewery, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And then it's like that aspect of giving back where you feel, I don't know, he took a massive chance on us and working with us and becoming so involved and, giving so much of his time and just being such an amazing person that that's like a small thing giving back, which feels amazing. Yeah. And I think again, he's done an incredible job. And I think that relationship, that symbiosis of like brewery and artist is something Mm. that is pretty, I think you need it. I just think you have to have, you have to have that creative vision. I I also think it's quite unique to our industry. It's like, we're constantly releasing new stuff. We're constantly, you know, I'll be messaging Tom or emailing Tom every day because I do all the, pretty much all the names and all the design briefs for all our cans and all our labels. So I'm working with them the whole time. And it's mm-hmm. probably one of the most enjoyable things about my job was working with Tom. So there's not many other industries where you've got people within whatever it is. I, I don't know, even other food and drink industries, you don't really have that thing like constant, like working together, constantly like, trying to create, because we're creating new beers every other week we're doing a new bit you know right Theo I could I've got so much to ask you but I feel I'm trying to keep these episodes down to an hour so I feel like we should probably come into land with this so I I gave you a pre-warning of this question oh yeah yeah, Um, so you are a brewer everyone's out the brewery you can brew any beer in the world that's ever been made or something totally new for your Post no pre-apocalypse beer. Uh, what are you going to brew? Is it, is it, is it for, okay, Steph. Is it for me to have at my house to drink, or is it? Yeah, for it's me just to, for you. Just for me to drink. Yeah. Mm. I. 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 It'd probably be like Augustina Hellas or something like that. Something really clean and simple and easy drinking. That that's sort of beers that I drink most regularly now I'd say like really good lagers or actually quite a lot of like good English styles as well so like good bitters and and then obviously good hobby pale ales and stuff as well oh man I'm with you all the way Augustina Helles is is king (laughs) yeah the big thing for us now in the brewery is trying to make a lager which is really good that's big so we're really trying to um 
we're, we're getting somewhere with our lagers and like i think people are starting to realize that we're, we're serious about it and stuff like that but i really want it to be like we want to make like epic lagers and- yeah it's a really hard one and it's a hard one because the con- consumers aren't like necessarily drawn to lagers like it's not no. something that that people you know you, it's not as any brewery probably will attest like small craft brewery it's probably your slowest yeah. moving beer that you produce yeah, yeah. Um, unless you're known for lagers so yeah I think like Don Lost and Grounded or something. Yeah, Don quit. But yeah, I feel the consumers are probably coming around to it a bit more, but mm-hmm. the beer that we do are definitely more in the consumer's minds in terms of like, um, yeah, hype and stuff like that. But I can't let you go because you've just canned the best bitter. Yes. So yeah, what do you see? Like that's a huge development. I feel like there's more breweries going to old school styles. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, so we're going for quite a few tangents at the moment with that. Like we we've got quite a lot of English, not not a lot of English stars, but like we want to make the next. We've got, we're doing an ESB soon, then we're doing Golden Ale. Like wow. we're going down that route pretty hard. But then is also this, we're is canning. this just all? Is this just all for your dad? Going back to yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Show that, that. Yeah. Show that. but yeah it's a really interesting part of where it, it feels like there's, there's definitely a resurgence of these older styles yeah i think I, I, it's such a cliche but it's like uh we are making beers we want to drink which is true but they're, fu- they're kind of like the whole thing around it is fun as well it's like brewing these english styles where we're using brookhouse hops which is up the road I don't know. There's something about it that feels really good, and like it's beers that we're really interested in drinking, and maybe like shining a bit of a light on them as well, and saying they're actually like really, really good beers. And you can have the brand with the beer, even though it's this beer. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think when we were discussing earlier, a lot of those English breweries weren't excited because of the brand, not necessarily because of the beer. But I think breweries are showing now that you can make amazing lagers or amazing best bitters if you've got the right brand behind it, people are going to get excited about it, but it's never going to be as exciting as a, it's, as a double IPA that tastes like juice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a crazy concept to think of like, uh, if you sent that kind of your best bitter back six years and you saw it on a shelf in a shop, just like a day of best bitter, just like that design, a 440 yeah. can of best bitter. Yeah. But the, the weird thing, the design, I love the design because with Tom, we've been working on different, different lines in our design. So you have like the standard, you have like the IPAs and double IPAs as a sort of style. Then we have these different series going on. So we've got the something good series where we're having a different design for that. Then we have the saturated in series, which is double IPA series. Then we've got mm-hmm. the English style beers, which is a different format of design. Then we've got the lagers, which is a completely different format of design. And then all the mixed firm stuff, which we're just starting to package loads of mixed firm stuff. And that's all completely different designs as well. So and keeping him on his toes quite a lot with like all yeah. kinds of different stuff. But that, that, that's what excites me. Like all this different stuff going on the whole time. Yeah. And I said like in my conversation when I was applying for brewing jobs, I probably wouldn't be in much use because I'd be constantly just trying to <laughs> think about different stuff. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm with you all the way, man. You got, I mean, that's the, that's what drives this thing forward though. That's what will keep pushing it forward. And you've kind of constantly got to have your foot on the gas. I don't think you can let up like in a market that moves so quickly, you can't get lost. So all of these ideas and energy, it really matters. Yeah. You can't stay still for a second because there's so many things going on at any one time. So many, so many. 
but you want to be doing things for the right reasons but it's like you've got to be constantly trying to evolve and trying to move forward and that's it thanks so much for listening I really hope you enjoyed that one like I said in the introduction it was a really big learning curve for me as well I've spoke to Theo many many times but for one reason or another or maybe one beer or another we've never really dug into the roots of what they are and how they came to be so I learned loads in that conversation and also just how headstrong and kind of possessed with quality Theo was to get him to where they are now We'll be back next week. Again, thanks so much for listening. This is Track Brewing Co. Presents the First Time. I am Stefan Melbourne. And as ever, stay thirsty. <laughs>